It is so good to preach to a room that has people in it. I know you've existed and it's been great to say, ah, oh, the church isn't a building, the church isn't a building, the church still exists, but it's nice to see the church. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for tracking with us. Thank you for all the ministry that's continued to go on behind the scenes that's because of we are a real church. But oh, Thank you, those of you that chose to come back today. It is a joy to be together with you and to sing. Probably nobody here today would disagree if I said to you that these have been some of the most frightening, tumultuous, chaotic days that we have ever lived through as Christians here in America. But... Here's what I don't think enough people are hearing that I want you to hear today. But I believe with all my heart and am praying to this end that God wants to use this current chaos and darkness to refine his church and refocus his people on what matters most so they can live for what matters most, the glory of God. Not a particular cause that has a slogan to go with it, the glory of God. Not a political party, the glory of God. And even, God forbid, not America, the glory of God. It's time for the people of God to come back to the glory of God and start living for it. That's what we need. Our world is crying out with what they think we need. You guys... Don't get sucked into it like everybody else. We need the people of God to come back to the glory of God and start living for it. But when I say that, you want to try to live for the glory of God in times like this? You're going to need courage. And so let's answer that question today. What does real courage even look like? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. What's going on here is is there is a riot and a mob and a violent moment. And Paul is speaking to this riotous, violent crowd. He says this, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I receive letters to the brethren. I went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened. As I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, this is the resurrected Jesus Christ speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? 
And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you. That you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him, again, Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I even was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. Well, as we get started today, I actually want to back it up and answer a different question first before we dig into courage what it is. My first point is to answer this question, you guys. If we're going to be courageous, we need to get a hold of, number one, what are Christians even supposed to be most courageous about? We're in a time right now where it's all about courage. Oh, that's very courageous. Look at what they're saying. Look how bold they are. Look, 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 look. News alert. It's great to be courageous. It's even better to be courageous in the right arena and in the right way, people of God. Courage alone is nothing to be proud of if you are exercising it in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Our our world is going crazy. I don't expect the world to act any different than crazy. I do expect the family of God to act different. What are we supposed to be most courageous about? You see the riot and controversy right here in this passage that has erupted is actually because the Jews think that Paul took his traveling companion, who's a Greek, Trophimus, into the temple with him and defiled it. Since they saw him traveling with him, they just assumed he took him. He didn't. And they're going crazy. That's what this riot is about. But Paul takes this opportunity That's the controversy in the riot, and it's a false accusation, and he spends no time defending himself about that. But instead, takes the opportunity to bring it back to the main thing, the gospel, and how Jesus Christ has changed his life Forever, You will find Christians in the book of Acts doing this repeatedly. Actually not answering the question that is being pressed on them in the moment. But taking the moment of chaos and confusion when the world has all turned to them. 
and making it a platform to talk about the most important thing, the gospel and Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Stephen did when we saw his death. He was being pressed on a different question and he took the opportunity to do a sermon that walked them from Genesis 1-1 all the way through how Jesus is who you should have been looking for. Now, it ended with them killing him. It's not my favorite sermon or how things should end. But he didn't answer their question. It's almost like you ever heard someone say, well, here's the question you should have asked me. They don't say that, but they just dive in. How often do we have the world's attention? Not very often. The thing we should be most courageous about is the gospel and Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1, Acts 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. It's the Greek word apologia, from which we get our English word apologetics. It can be translated in English, answer or defense. That's why we've got 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, Be ready to give an answer, apologia, or defense to everyone who asked you a reason for the hope that is in you. News alert, Christians. With meekness. And fear. It matters what you're talking about. And it matters how you're saying it. Your tone. Your tone. He takes this opportunity to give an answer on what matters most. Regardless of how the Apostle Paul was pressed or attacked. He was always looking for a chance to bring it back to the gospel. Because he knew That's what matters most that would make the biggest difference in his culture and will still make the biggest difference in ours today. And yet, here's what I hear. So here's what I'm telling you. If you're wondering, are you actually saying I am? Believers, despite all the chaos we have right now, whether it's over the pandemic, whether it's over political systems or whether it's over race. The thing you should be most focused on and most courageous about is the gospel and Jesus Christ. I see Christians, and I wish some of them weren't my church family, being the boldest and most courageous and unashamed I've ever seen them about a political system or about this, that, or the other. And I want to say, I've never seen you that courageous or outspoken or unashamed about Jesus and the gospel. Where has this been? Why'd you save it for this? Most focused on, most courageous about the gospel, regardless of what's going on in our culture. And and let me just speak the elephant in the room. Here's the pushback I get and hear and see online. Are you really going to point us to the gospel as a solution to racial reconciliation? For crying out loud, Brad, the church has been doing evangelism and preaching the gospel for centuries and it hasn't solved the problem of sinful racism. If that is you, listen to me. Oh my goodness. Here's what I would say to you. You could say the same thing about poverty and hunger and sexual abuse and every other sinful horizontal problem that impacts people created in the image of God. And just because it still exists, don't say it's made no difference. You, if that's you, you have no idea what our culture today would look like and the level of 
of terror and harm against other people that would be going on if it had not been for centuries now of the power of the gospel taking out a sinful dead heart of stone and putting in a living heart of flesh that can beat after God and has the capacity now to set aside its own rights and love and serve somebody else sacrificially. That is radical and that only happens as a result of a heart change. Don't say it's made no difference. Just say we're not done. Say we're not done. We're always playing catch up. Because as soon as people get saved, new wretched sinners are born. Do you ever notice that? They arrive sinful. What's the answer? Keep preaching the gospel. Don't shift to something else and say the gospel doesn't work. That is an, I'm just going to say it. Please don't email me. That's ignorant and that's lame. And you're not thinking if you say that. Don't hear me saying it's the only thing. But don't let something else become the main thing. Because until people are made right with God through the gospel and justification and have peace with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, they have zero capacity to see anyone else on a horizontal level differently or treat them differently. You actually have a low view of just how bad this sin problem we have is. We're not sick. We're we're horribly, horribly enslaved to sin. And have the capacity to do heinous things against other people. Before our heart is changed. That's why Paul describes the gospel life change in Titus chapter 3 like this. Listen to how he describes. Here's who we were before Jesus saved us. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Listen to this. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. See any of that going on? Oh, man, there's a truckload of hate right now. Hate and anger. Being hated and hating one another. Glorious conjunction coming up right here. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The gospel frees us and empowers us to go from being haters to being people of mercy who've received mercy. Therefore, we can extend it to others. Even others that, quote, might be your enemy. It looks like they're my enemy. That's radical. It's only Christians that have been able to do this. And God has been using Christians for centuries to do this. And we've got to keep doing it. There's not a new thing that needs to be done today. Through amazing, through politics or through glossy brochures or through blogs or through anything else. There is no more powerful change agent in this world than the gospel. The gospel. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of this political party. No. This cause. I am not ashamed of the say it. 
Say it louder. Shout it through your little mask. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. There's no place you see more of the power of God. It's not a hurricane, hurricane, tornado, lightning, thunder. You never see more evidence of the power of God than when you see a man or woman saved. Saved. There's no way that can happen apart from God. A sinful, dead, hateful heart taken out and a living heart of flesh put in that now beats after God. And notice how I'm wording this carefully and has the capacity now. Doesn't mean it'll be automatic to set aside its own rights to sacrificially love and serve and yea, verily, even lay down their life for somebody else. The world doesn't know how to do that. The world's all about money. The world's all about education. The world's all about political power. But Christians need to stay about the main thing. The gospel. The gospel. So what about racism? Is it a problem and does it still exist today? I know some of you are going to disagree with me because I see what some of you have been saying online. But your pastor, you don't have to agree, believes, yes, racism still exists today. Why? Because sinners still exist today. Sinners still exist today. You say, well, the word racism is not in the Bible. Come on, you guys. Judging others, preferring yourself, esteeming yourself more highly, looking down on someone else, treating them differently because of, that's racism. And it's rooted in our sinful hearts. And yes, it still happens. Just like so many other sinful, horizontal sins that impact people created in the image of God. So here I am telling you, yes, it still exists, but praise God, so does the gospel. But I would go on record as saying this too. And white people are not the only ones guilty of it. People of color can be guilty of sinful racism. Why? Because they're sinners. Let me help you here. I've got a Hispanic pastor friend here in the United States trying to pastor a Spanish-speaking church, right? You would think everyone that speaks Spanish that can't understand the sermon in English would be oh so grateful for a church. Let's all come together and just love each other because we all speak Spanish. Is that how it works? Uh, If you know anything about human beings, no. His top issue he has to relentlessly focus on and work on is the conflict in his church between those who are from Peru versus those from Guatemala versus those from Mexico because they do not all think alike and each group thinks their way is right and best and judges and condemns and yea, verily pulls away from those that don't think like them. I had a South African friend in the 80s. I had a South African friend when that was raging in South Africa, right? Who helped me to realize the problem of racism in South Africa was not just between blacks and whites, but also involved what they called colored people who were light brown. Because there were blacks who would discriminate against her as a colored woman for not being black enough. You're not black enough. You're not black enough. In 1994, you guys, I mean, just think. 
Look at history in 1994 in 100 days, three months. This is not like forever ago. In 100 days in the African country of Rwanda, the Tutsis, no, I'm sorry, 800,000, the slaughter of 800,000 Tutsis at the hand of the Hutus. And this was a black group destroying another black group. And it was an ethnic driven slaughter. Black on black. We all, if you're old enough, we all sat and watched the Olympics in Bosnia. And here's this educated, beautiful place with beautiful buildings and cities and history. And we all sat and watched the Olympics. And 10 years later, in front of our televisions, if you were like me, my jaw just dropped open thinking these are educated. And we're watching them destroy the cities and slaughter thousands of people. And it was an ethnic driven war between people who were all of the same skin tone, but not ethnicity. What is going on? Sinful human hearts. Listen to me. America is not the only country that still faces the sinful struggle of racism. And it's not a new problem. You can read your New Testament and see in the Gospels. You can see in the Gospels that the Jews hated the Samaritans. An ethnic group. Some Jews that had mixed married with some Assyrians and Babylonians. And they hated them for that. You're not pure. The Jews considered all Gentiles to be, you remember what they called them? Dogs. And people didn't have dogs as house pets back then. That was the most, one of the most derogatory terms you could use. Because dogs roamed the streets. They were mangy. They were disease infested. They were scary. And they scavenged in the garbage. And the Jews considered all Gentiles. And the word in the Greek is ethnos. All other ethnic groups to be dogs. So if racism still exists... And is a problem. And I'm saying it is. Some of you might be wondering. And some of you have literally asked. And it's a great question. The question should be asked. I don't think it's wrong that you're asking it. I'm a little concerned with how some of you are coming at us. The question's being asked. What is Grace Fellowship doing about racial reconciliation? And why haven't we seen the elders roll out some action steps and rally us all? This is what we're going to do together. Let me help you. When you say, what is Grace Fellowship doing about racial reconciliation? My answer is this. We're going to keep doing the same thing we've been doing for 25 years. Number one, I'm going to give you three things. But number one, we are going to stay focused on proclaiming the life-changing message of the gospel that changes the heart of someone and how they relate to God so that they can have peace with God that would ever give them the capacity to see another person differently or treat another person differently. We're not going to shift. Our own pastor, Peter LaRufa, said it well last week on Instagram. Someone asked him, what's the role of a believer towards racial reconciliation right now with all this going on? And I'm going to quote him so that you can attack him. No, I'm just kidding. I got his permission. But I thought he said it well, and it captured my heart as well. I said, Peter, can I just quote that? Here it is, and I quote, Christians seek to reconcile people to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When people are reconciled to God, they have a new identity in Christ. 
thus resulting in a new perspective of others because hashtag we are family. Of course, Christians involve themselves in otherworldly endeavors in life apart from evangelism. That's fine. But I, now I want you to know this next sentence that he states, I agree with it and so do the elders. So if you want to know what we're thinking, here you go. I don't think anything will bring about true, lasting reconciliation between people groups apart from the gospel. Most solutions that you see being suggested today will not only fail to work, but will almost certainly make matters worse. You see some things being touted, and here's the mistake I believe people are making, even Christians. Well, it's working. It's working. We're getting some of the things we've... We're not supposed to be pragmatists, folks. We're talking about true, lasting, God-glorifying. You can bully and intimidate, and it might seem like, oh, yeah, some of the boxes are getting checked now. We're asking as Christians, what would God have us to do? True, lasting reconciliation can only even begin when someone is made right with God through Jesus Christ. So we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And oh, by the way, we're that church that's not, you got to bring your friend here to hear it. We keep trying to help you know how to share it one-on-one in the marketplace, in the gym, in your neighborhood. Point people to Jesus Christ. Know how to share the gospel. Don't, don't, don't feel intimidated and think, ah. No, that's still the most important thing So find yourself, learn how to take a phrase and turn this whole mess when someone looks at you and says, ah, how would you turn it towards a gospel conversation? Because folks, that's what's needed most. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We got to point him to the prince of peace. And tell them what the Prince of Peace did for them so that they could have peace with God and then with anybody else. But number two, we're not a perfect church. But folks, I get excited right now thinking we are that church that I do think is a little ahead of some other churches. Because a lot of churches just preach the gospel and then good luck on living it out with practical stuff. Be warm, be filled. We don't know nothing about nothing. When you have a marriage problem, when you're depressed, when you're whatever, I'll pray for you. We're the church. Number two, that's going to keep doing biblical counseling where we sit down with real people in the trenches, one-on-one. It's hard work and it's glorious, rewarding, fruitful work. I had a guy just, just recently before COVID hit, 50 years old. He said, my life has been transformed. I praise God. I prayed. That's not Brad Bigney. But God used God's word to show him things about himself he said he'd never seen before. He said, I see how these things about me have impacted other people on the job and in my family my whole life. We dug into things about him as a boy, why he began to think the way he did and do what he did. And it was causing horizontal trouble. And by God's grace and his spirit and his word, this man is not perfect, but he was helped I'm working with a couple now that literally my observers after Wednesday night said, oh, Pastor Brad, their countenance literally looks different. They're like a different people, two different people. And they had a horrific marriage. Biblical 
counseling, showing people how to live out the gospel and how to change and grow and not be guilty of saying, that's just who I am. That's just who I am. Here's some news for you. When you get saved, the DNA for change now resides in you. Every Christian can change. Is it hard work? Oh, yeah. That 50-year-old guy kept coming back saying, oh, I had no idea it would be this hard. I had no idea it would be this hard. It's not like, whoo. He had to lean into it, the truth of what he was hearing, and by God's spirit, begin to change and do something about it. But DNA for change resides inside every believer. They sometimes need someone to walk beside them and help, and we're the church that's trying to do that. You don't know it because it's not appropriate to talk about it, but there's hundreds of people doing this kind of work behind the scenes. Don't say, whoa, what's Grace Fellowship doing for the community? Why aren't we blah, 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 blah. We're doing something that so few churches do and it's hard and it's rewarding and it's life-changing and it causes people to be able to live for the glory of God in a way that, yes, will impact our community and culture starting in their home and spilling out. Not saying we're perfect, but these are two things that are huge that we cannot lose sight of and begin to act like something else now matters more. Number three, we've always been this way and we're going to keep being this way, you guys. We're going to keep equipping every believer who calls Grace Fellowship home to head out into the culture and make a difference in whatever area. Hear me closely now. God, by his spirit, calls you to get involved in. You guys... When, they, when people say to us, why haven't the elders rolled out an action plan? Why isn't there a program? Why don't I see eight steps on the... We've never been that church. We don't start dozens of programs. We equip you and as you get passionate, we believe you filled with the Holy Spirit and using God's word and your gifts can make a difference in any number of areas. Go do it. Don't wait for us to create it. If you have a passion... Right now, to use the gospel and your gifts to bring healing and hope and help to this issue of racial reconciliation. Praise God, it is desperately needed. But don't take the attitude of, why isn't everybody else dropping everything they're doing? We're not all sitting on our hands, friends. Maybe you're not involved in anything. But a lot of our people are already up to their eyeballs in real ministries that are making a difference with other horrible problems in our culture. Don't hear me saying it doesn't need to be addressed. But if you are being pricked, say, God, what would you have me to do? But now let me give this caveat. Here's what I want you to hear. Five weeks ago, I sat on this stage with Pastor LaRufa. And I led you in a service of lamentation, sorrow, and prayer. Called the church to pray. And challenged each of us to look at our own hearts. And to consider, to see ourselves first. That's biblical, you guys. Matthew 7 says, get the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother or sister with the speck. I would do it again that way, but mm, we took some grief. I think it's a, it's a great first response. Sorrow, humility, oh Lord, is it me? 
Is there anything that I should consider? And I said, as a white pastor, pastoring a predominantly white church, that I thought the number one thing I could do is listen more than talk. The Bible says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But now here's what I want you to hear. I have been listening now for five weeks to our culture. And I got to be honest, it's breaking my heart as I've listened to some of my church family, the way they're talking to each other and the way they're talking online. And now I'm here to tell you, I don't care that I'm a white middle class pastor. I think I'm called to teach and shepherd us how to go through this in a way that is biblical, biblical and God glorifying. We're supposed to make a difference, but not do it just like the world would do it. Not just do it anyway. If it's a need, doesn't matter how you do it. Just get it done. You won't find that kind of teaching in the Bible. So I want to clarify and go on record for everybody. The Bible, the Bible never condones anarchy, violence, Breaking laws to accomplish good purposes, no matter how worthy or good the cause. Never. God is not a God of chaos, he says. Not a God of confusion. God is not against government. And it was written in Romans 13 when the government was Rome and Caesar. Not a great deal. So we're taught from scripture. We're not to be the people that add to the anarchy or confusion. And I want you to hear me as your pastor Even if you say, well, I'm not doing the violence, if you condone it. And when you say things like, well, now this is just such a crisis, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. We're not to be those that condone anarchy or we're never called to use violence or break laws. You think about it. We got people online now I'm seeing. They're pointing to Jesus in the temple, turning the tables over and driving people out. The day you're Jesus, feel free to do that. But you're his followers And oh, by the way, it was not his own issue. He was doing it for the glory of God because the house of God had been turned into a marketplace instead of a place of worship and prayer. He was furious for the glory of God and for the church to keep being the church. And I think today he would say the same thing. You won't find him looking at his disciples and say, pick up swords, let's go, let's get this done. Nope. Never did he call his disciples to use violence to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. When Peter, even in the garden, pulled out a sword and whacked off an ear, not only did he say, Peter, put your sword away, he picked up the ear and put it back on. Very nice. James and John. Remember this place in the, in the Gospels, Luke 9? James and John say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire and consume those Samaritans? They got to a city of Samaria that was rude to Jesus and said, you can't come in here. And James and John said, do you want us to call down fire and consume them? Not only did he rebuke them, but listen to what he said. Luke nine fifty five. He looked at them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Little less. You know what he's saying? Right now, you don't have my spirit because that's not how I get things done. I know you're passionate. I know you think you're being courageous, but that is not my spirit. It's very similar to Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Remember when Peter said, 
Lord, no, 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 no. He started talking about the cross. And he said, oh, no, no, never. You, you're not going to the cross. You're not going to the cross. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me. Who did he call him? Satan. Satan. Now, I don't know if you know this, but look it up when you get on Matthew 16, 23. He literally said next, because you are a hindrance to me. Because right now, your mind is not set on the things of God, but the things of man. Here's my challenge. Some of you, I think, think that right now your Savior is saying, cheering you on in what you're doing. And I would like you to hear, I think your Savior just might be saying, you are a hindrance to me. Because you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. If you are angry, if you are going after people, if you've turned it personal and you're attacking, and whether even if it's online, I'm going to keep saying this until Jesus comes because it continues to be a problem. Talking online and posting online does not involve a different set of biblical principles. People are sitting on the other end of that. We are to be gracious, humble, civil, and truthful, how we communicate. Consider today. I don't know what you've been doing in the last weeks. Would your Savior maybe be looking at you and hoping you would lock eyes with him? Not to say, great, keep it up. But you're actually a hindrance to what I'm trying to do right now. And you don't understand what kind of spirit you're of. We are not to adopt the spirit of our world even for a good cause. Now, let me say it again. Do I think racism is still a sinful problem? Do I think God wants to do something about it? I'm convinced he wants to do something about it the same way he's addressed every other sinful problem in a way that's radically different than what the world would do. We need Christians in all these areas, but we need them. And I know it's awkward because you're there, but you got to speak up sometimes and say, "Uh, not like that. I don't actually agree with that. But I think we've got Christians that are like, no, I'm just going to act like all of it's great because they are getting something done. We're not supposed to do that, you guys. I know it can be awkward. So here's what I want to encourage. If you think God is tapping you and you're passionate about bringing the gospel and help and healing and hope to this mess. And it is a mess, sinful mess of racism in our culture. Would you please do this prayerfully and carefully align yourself with someone who is doing it in a biblical and gospel centered way? And all I'm asking you to do is what we've been doing for 25 years now. Is heroin and drug addiction a problem in northern Kentucky, Cincinnati and our nation? Should we just jump in and hook our wagon to anybody who's trying to address it? There are horrific things our culture is doing regarding addiction. And I know they think they're helping, but it's not biblical. It's not gospel centered. And at the end of the day, it won't be helpful. The same thing's true of racism. We're partnering with and our people are serving in ministries that are addressing huge sin problems, but they're not perfect, but trying to do it in a biblical, gospel-centered way. Fairhaven Rescue. 
We support everything I'm about to rattle off, we give money to. So when you put money in the offering boxes or you, or you do push pay online, thank you. We don't consume it all and there's no sauna and Pastor Jim back there. We pay our expenses, we pay our staff, and then we push a bunch of it outside the walls of our church to the tune of like six, seven, sometimes 800,000 towards these other good ministries that are doing things, addressing horrific problems in our culture, but doing it in a biblical, gospel-centered way. And then numbers of our people jump in and serve in those ministries Fairhaven Rescue, addressing hunger and poverty, but trying to do it in a biblical, gospel-centered way. Many of our people have served on the board. Safe Families is trying to help people who are either in drug rehab or in prison so that their children don't get taken into the foster care program. We've got people in our church opening their homes and taking in children they don't even know and loving them and taking care of them while mom or dad is going through rehab or, and they can't figure out why we'd be this kind for free. And it's starting gospel conversations and the director of it is Amber Jones who goes to our church. We've got healing hearts that's seeking to bring grace and help to women who have been sexually abused or, or been wounded through abortion and Camille Cates, who's one of the national leaders, is in our church. Thinks biblical counseling is bringing gospel-centered biblical answers to this problem. And we got a number of people serving in it. Young Life Capernaum was started by Eric Northrop, one of our campus pastors. That's why we tapped him. We knew this guy knows how to build something and start something from nothing. That's why we were thrilled to make him a campus pastor. And we also knew he was gospel-centered. And he started Young Life Capernaum to try to connect with people with disabilities who so often are just marginalized, passed over. They can't go to the normal youth camp. They can't attend normal events, but they're loving them. They're having gospel conversations with their families. Very few people are doing this for them for free. Young Life Capernaum started by Eric Northrup. Scarlet Hope is a ministry to women who are trapped in the adult entertainment industry. And a number of our women are involved, loving those ladies. And the director right now is Jessica During from our church. Now, if you didn't hear it and you're not making the connections, let me just say it. Because sometimes I get this criticism. Oh, Grace Fellowship's kind of heady. You always mention reading books. You like books. And you preach long sermons like from the Bible. <laughs> and they act like that's not going to make a difference in our community. And we're just this scholastic academic church. My sinful response is shut up. <laughs> the better response is look at the fruit. We didn't have to start all these things. It is a natural gospel overflow. It doesn't cause our people to say, I just want to mark up my Bible with colored pencils and I don't care about other people. All these things are being done by grace fellowship people who've been so impacted by the gospel and they're so convinced it will impact others and they see a desperate need and problem and they say, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help. But because they've been taught the Bible and they love the gospel, they're trying to do it in biblical gospel-centered ways. Our church is making a difference in our community, but the church didn't start all these. We don't have a food pantry. We don't have, and we're never going to you guys. Don't look to us to start it or run it, but we will fund good things. And we've got great people that jump in and use their gifts in good ministries. I could go on with other things, but I'll, I'll give you this last one. This is not everything that's going on in our church. You guys, 30 years ago, 
a nurse in our church, family, saw the need for a crisis pregnancy center. She did the hard work for two years of praying and rallying people to try to help her get, off that, get it off the ground. It's New Hope Center today. She's Linda Gray. And 30 years later, there are four locations around northern Kentucky that's bringing practical help and hope to men and women who have a pregnancy they weren't planning on. And gospel conversations are happening. Discipleship's happening. Free diapers and car seats and real stuff is happening. But a woman saw a need and loved the gospel and knew God's word. And it took time. But now look what God is doing. So here's all I want to say to those that are passionate about what about racial reconciliation? Pray and look for a group that you can partner with that is biblical and gospel-centered. Read their statement. Read what they say they believe. Read what they say they want to do. If it's not biblical and if it's not gospel-centered, don't hitch your wagon to it. And you say, but... Because here's what I'm going to say back to you. If you can't find one, start it. You say, but it won't be up and running in time to help this. Trust me. Five years from now, the sin of racism will still exist. Because new sinners are going to keep being born. Pray. God may want to use this current cultural crisis to cause something new to be raised up that never existed before, but is biblical and gospel centered. Is there a need? Absolutely. If it doesn't exist and you're not always already very involved in something else, start praying, find others that care and start praying and saying, what might God want us to do? What would this look like? Number two. I want to answer a second question from this passage. How should that courage, real courage, how should that courage cause us to speak to other people around us, even if they're attacking us or we feel threatened by them? I don't have time, but if you back it up into chapter 21 and you start in verse 34, you will see the word tumult, violence, Mob and rebellion. And then you will see the Apostle Paul. That's the context. Does that sound familiar to right now? And the Apostle Paul takes control of the situation and settles the crowd down by setting a tone of civility. He turns to the Roman commander who's having to carry him because people are about to pull him apart. And he says, may I speak to you? That's polite. That's courteous. Then later he says, I implore you, permit me to speak to the crowd. And then he settles the crowd. Folks, somebody, and I believe it's supposed to be God's people, needs to bring a different tone to this whole situation. Don't hear me saying it'll solve it. But we should not be bringing the same kind of tone So let me ask you, I want you to set aside right now. I don't care if it's mask, no mask, pandemic, is it real, or the race thing, or whatever. I feel like the whole culture is just blown up. Everyone's mad. Everyone's angry. Everyone's frightened. And everyone has an opinion, a strong one. I want you, how do I know? You're emailing me. (laughs) 
I would love to show you some of these things that I get, how different those of you all think. And then say, welcome to my pastor world. This is really hard. Well, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to get off and do that. I love you. <clears throat> it's my, I literally, I keep going because I keep saying to myself, this is why people need a pastor. This is why people, need, I get to be a pastor. I drive over here and say, I get to be a pastor. I get to be a pastor. But some of you are starting to make me forget that. <clears throat> but anyway, I want you to set aside whatever your position is on whatever issue and how convinced you are that you're right. You're like, dang, what's left? So the issue, your position, and all your data that you think convinces you you're absolutely right. I don't even care. And I want to ask you this. What kind of tone have you been setting by the way you keep saying what you're saying about it? Is it exaggerated? Is it inflammatory? Is it extreme? Or is it humble, truthful, kind, and polite? You can't pick up on it in the English, but in those verses in 21, 34 and following, when Paul turns to the Roman commander, he actually uses a Greek dialect that was reserved for courteous, courteous, educated conversation. It's not a courteous, educated kind of moment. It's a mob, but he doesn't get down on their level. He continues to be civil, humble, gracious, and Truthful. And it settled the crowd. I can't promise you that'll happen. And we don't do what we do for results. We say, well, that didn't work, Brad. I tried that. We don't do what we do because it works. We do what we do because we're the people of God. And we, we do what we do for an audience of one. So it's time to come back and say, wait a minute. You may have your camp just cheering you on saying, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. Loved what you said there. I want you to think, what has your Savior been saying about how you've been saying what you're saying? Because that's who matters most. That's who matters most. And number three as we close. It's obvious we need change. No one would disagree. Oh man, something's got to change. Something's got to change. Where are we headed? Something's got to change. Agree. But point number three, where should we put our hope for real change? Listen to me. The greatest hope for our country and this world is still the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest change agent in the world. Not money, not education, not political systems, and not slogans or causes. The gospel is the greatest change agent in the world. Which is why, by the way, right here in Acts 22, we're getting Paul's testimony for a second time. Some of you that are so cut to the chase kind of people would think, well, that's a waste of space. The Holy Spirit needed a better editor. We already heard this in Acts 9. Yeah, we're getting it again in Acts 22. Guess what? Before you even finish the book, you'll get Paul's lengthy testimony again in Acts 26. Why? Because God wants us to see what the gospel can do in a real life. This man was a murderer. This man was a persecutor of the church. 
And when the gospel changed his heart, he became an amazing pastor and missionary and wrote 12 books of the Bible. One person that was changed by the gospel. God still delights in doing things that way today. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Some of you aren't sleeping well. And it's because, listen to me, you, you want real hope? You got to look up out of this dark, chaotic, forsaken land and fix your eyes on hope that's outside of this world. You won't find it in this world. And he has a name. Jesus. Jesus. Stay aware of what's going on, you guys. But for crying out loud, how much detail do you need? Is it still bad? Yeah. Things still burning? Yeah. People still angry? Yeah. I thought so. I'll just keep reading my Bible. Some of you are glued to the news. Some of you are glued to talk radio. And some of you are not doing what I'm doing. I am sitting with my, I am just as disturbed as you are. I've never felt more unsettled, emotional, disturbed, or frightened than I have in this season. Welcome to my world. But what breaks my heart is I sense that many of you are not doing what I'm doing. I could not have kept going through this without sitting each morning with my Bible open in my lap. And I read a little Old Testament where I'm reminded God is sovereign over nations and wicked rulers. And he's still accomplishing his purposes. And then I read a psalm where I worship I worship God and his attributes. And then I read a little bit of a gospel where I see Jesus. Some of you need to see the sovereignty of God. Some of you need to worship. And some of you need to see Jesus. And oh, by the way, listen to him in case he's saying, you are a hindrance to me. And you don't know what kind of spirit you have right now. I can't control the culture. And I'm not called to. I'm called to help you impact the culture. But it's time for the people of God. To come back to the glory of God and start living for it in ways that overflow into, yes, practical things that we're doing. But anytime you're driven by anger or fear, sinful anger or fear, you will not accomplish the purposes of God. We got way too many angry Christians and frightened Christians, angry Christians and frightened Christians. Yes, be passionate. But not driven by fear. Perfect. Because whenever anger and fear dominate, guess what we know is missing? Love. Perfect love cast out fear. And then James 1.20 says, For the wrath of man will not accomplish or produce the righteousness of God. We will not get done what God wants to do through wrath, anger, and fear. Love. Love. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you are still in control and you are on the move in this mess. Oh God, help us as your weak little people. To look to you. Because you said in our weakness your strength is made perfect. Would you use us? Even if it's in tiny little ways. 
to be your people and to make a difference and to stand out as peculiar. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.